Just grab in one of the connect cards you see in the seat backs that are in front of you. Fill that out at some point during this time and meet either Melody or I. We will be right outside these doors. There's a little easy up with the cart in there. Uh, we'll meet you there. We just want to love to, we would love to connect with you. We would love to kind of just touch base, see if there's ways we can be praying for you or anything like that uh, so that you can let us know. Uh, I get the honor of being able to talk to you guys a little bit and tell you specifically some of the stuff that we got going on. This week, there's a lot going on, specifically this Wednesday. Um, this Wednesday in the morning, our church will actually be over at LPU, Life Pacific University, which is right over there past the middle school. Uh, they have an event, and it's called I Heart My Church. And it's an event where they open up to local churches in the area. Uh, they can come, you set up an easy up, and you kind of just hang out there and connect with students and say hi, let them know what your church is about, what you're doing. Uh, so we are going to be there. Uh, we're going to be bringing some ramen, maybe some Nutella, maybe a little trinket or something, you know, what college students need, um, and hanging out, and we'll have flyers and information about our church. And it's just another piece of our effort to be more and more invested in this community that God has placed us in. So excited about that. Wednesday later in that evening is the final small group that's meeting here. Woo! Raise your hand if you've been to one, even if just once. Right? Lots of you guys. Good. So final small group going to be here. If your hand was just raised, you should show up. Even if you just showed up to the first one, show up again tonight. Celebrate uh, what God did through those weeks. If you never showed up and you're like, oh, maybe I'll check it out. Hey, might as well. See you tonight. So um, not tonight, Wednesday night. Uh, see you that night. And um, there will be some finger foods, kind of appetizer type feel, and just a chance to celebrate and be together. And here's a little teaser. You might get to hang out with some of our students. Woo. Did that just scare all of you off? Or are you all like, nah, I'm good. I'm not coming now. No, uh, but the reason that is, is Wednesday night, we actually have our fall kickoff for students. Um, really excited about that. Met with my leaders and planned out the fall events and community nights and other stuff we're doing all the way to winter camp in January and February. And we're just excited about what God has for our students this year. And in that vein, um, I would just ask you guys, uh, specifically, I'm even thinking students because I oversee our students. If you wouldn't mind as we enter into this fall as a community just to be praying for us. Because there's, there's a lot of, of work and thought and planning and calendaring that goes into our programs for our elementary, our small groups, our students, all these different things, garden and pantry and these things that we got going on. But that's only a percentage of, of what actually happens, Right? There's this gap that we have in ministry where we always have a percentage of it that we can't control and we trust God to do. And we believe that that changes with prayer, prayer of a community. So some of these things, you might not have any students in a ministry um, or even know of many, but would you pray for us as we enter into this fall? As we look at what garden might look like this fall, as we look at what the need is for pantry, especially as we enter into the holidays, just be praying for us as we lean into these opportunities and these communities. Uh, we would love that because we believe, uh, as our mission states, to be transformed by the Holy Spirit, to follow Jesus, love people, and do good. That, that doesn't happen unless we're spending some serious time giving it to God and just praying to God about all of these different things. So with that, also, I would like to draw your attention to um, 
a couple of ways that you can give. Uh, if you look in the seat backs right by that Connect card that I told you to look at, there's an envelope that says Give. One of the ways is you can grab that uh, and you can fill that out and you can put it. There's a box right outside these doors that's on the wall that says Give and one on a podium uh, that's standing there too. You can drop that in there. There's a couple of digital ways that you can give. Uh, you can, there's a text to give option. Uh, there's also, you can give online. Um, with that one, there's also ability to set up kind of like a monthly thing to where it kind of just does it digitally for you. Uh, things like that are always good for me because I'll forget and I say that as my wife's usually the one that would do it anyway. So thank you, babe, for not forgetting those things for us. Um, but that's an option. If any of those online things, there's a church center app, a couple of other different things. If any of those are confusing for you, please let us know. We would love to help you out. And again, if you have any questions about what this means to give in the church community, maybe you're new to this or you just aren't sure what that means or why you would participate financially, please find Melody or and I. We would love to just answer those questions and just share with you kind of what that means and what that looks like. So with that, this morning, uh, we're, I'm very excited for this morning, uh, not just that I'm not up here and I don't have to worry about that, uh, but we get Fuzz Rana, who, one second, look, you're already standing up. We get Fuzz Rana, uh, who's going to be teaching this morning. He's one of our elders. Uh, you know, he's our, our local Bengals fan. Any other Bengals fans in here? If you raise your hand, I'm calling you a bandwagon, just so you know, because they're in the, okay. Uh, local Bengals fan, all by yourself, man. Uh, resident, like, nerd, scientist, a bunch of different things. He has quite a resume. Very, very intelligent man, but super excited uh, that he's going to be teaching this morning. Also one of our elders, and just a man that I believe that God has placed here to lead us, to guide us, and he's going to do that through teaching this morning. So I'm going to pray for him and the rest of what we go, got going on this morning. Lord, we are blessed. We are blessed with the ability to be in here this morning, with the breath that we take this morning. We're blessed with these walls, this facility, amazing, talented people that lead us through to worship you through singing, through, through the lights, through all the technical stuff, the logistics that go on. Lord, we're also blessed with Fuzz, to, who's going to bring the word this morning a man that I know has dedicated so much of his time thinking and considering about what it means to be in a relationship with the creator of the universe. Lord, you have guided him, you've directed him in his life and all the different facets that he's done and the things that he has been responsible for. But I pray for him this morning as he brings the word that that his, his thoughts and all of those things would just pass away and your spirit would work through him in the preparation that he has had uh, in the time for this morning, Lord, that you would just honor that and you would bless it as you bless us with those things. So God, we are just grateful for an opportunity to worship you in all the different ways that looks like and all the different things that means. So we just give this morning to you and trust it to you in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. You know, at, at my age, when I bend down, it's not completely certain that I will be able to stand back up. So <laughs> that worked this morning. So great. Um, you know, uh, hands down, it was perhaps uh, one of the most remarkable places I've ever seen. It wasn't uh, the Getty Museum in, in Los Angeles 
which is an incredible place to visit where the architecture of the museum is perhaps as impressive as the artwork that's found in the museum. It wasn't the Blue Mosque in Istanbul. Amy and I had a chance to actually tour the Blue Mosque, which is an incredible uh, house of worship, even though it is a, a mosque. It wasn't the British Museum in London. This is a, a museum that houses incredible artwork as well as these art artifacts from antiquity. But rather, it was a lake. The most remarkable place that I've ever been is a lake. Oops. It was Lake Louise. Have any of you ever been to Lake Louise? Some of you. Well, Amy and I were, uh, stayed at the chateau, the chateau at Lake Louise. Uh, we were actually part of a team from Reasons to Believe that went to Lake Louise uh, with a, a group of people that were taking on a number of excursions, one of which was to hike up to the top of Mount Stevens, which is where the Burgess Shale is found. And the Burgess Shale is a World Heritage Site, and it was discovered in, in the early 1900s by a, a guy named Charles Walcott. And it, 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 from the Burgess Shale, fossils have been recovered that give us unprecedented insight into an event in life's history called the Cambrian Explosion. Uh, and, um, and so we were taking a team of, of, of people up to the top of Mount Stevens, but we got to stay at, the, at Lake Louise, at the Chateau at Lake Louise. And I can tell you that this picture doesn't do justice to the incredible beauty that you see uh, at Lake Louise. Uh, and it reminds me that the beauty of creation, the beauty that we see in the world around us, is far superior to anything that humans could produce as architects or as artists. There's an incredible artistry, there's an incredible beauty uh, to creation. And I'm just curious this morning if any of you would be willing to maybe share very quickly with us what you think to be the most beautiful place that you've ever visited. Anybody willing to? Hawaii. Hawaii, yeah, Hawaii is unbelievable. Pardon me? Okay, Patrick's point, I'm not familiar with that, but I'll have to, to look into that. Anybody else? Yes, Yosemite. Yeah, so the point is, is that we live in an incredibly beautiful world, do we not? Uh, and um, there's a, a website called Green Stories, and they have an article there of the 25 most beautiful places to visit in the world. Now, we don't have time this morning to go through all 25, but I thought it would be fun just to look at their top five. And you might agree or you might disagree with this list. Uh, but number five on the list is Plitvice Na Lake National Park in Croatia. And again, I've never been there, but uh, the, the pictures are stunning, and I can only imagine what it must be like to see that firsthand. Uh, number four on their list is I, Santorini, Greece. This is an iconic image of this particular location. The third uh, place on the list is the Blue Ridge Mountains. This is on the border of West Virginia and Virginia. And Amy and I grew up in West Virginia, and I've seen this, this firsthand, this vista firsthand. And I can tell you it is absolutely arresting. Number two is the Grand Canyon. 
I think probably many of you have been to the Grand Canyon and can attest to the beauty of the Grand Canyon. And then number one on their list is the Maroon Bell, which is outside of Aspen, sorry, Aspen, Colorado. But the whole point here is that we live in an incredibly beautiful world. And it's very easy, I think, to overlook that, to take that for granted. And the question on the table this morning is this. What does the beauty of the world tell us about God? What does the beauty of the world that God created us teach us about who God is? What does the beauty of the world that we live in teach us about who we are in relationship to God? And that's what we're going to be taking a look at this morning. Uh, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 19. We're in a series this summer, uh, Summer in the Psalms, and today we're going to be looking at Psalm 19. Now, Psalm 19 is called a creation psalm. There's a number of psalms that are focused on the creation that God has made. And, uh, and oftentimes the psalmist is reflecting upon the beauty and the elegance of what has been made and as a result of that is prompted to worship the creator who made the beauty of the world. So many of these psalms are worship psalms where creation is the motivation for worship. Some of the psalms involve describing creation and then thinking about what that tells us about who God is and, again, how we relate to God. But Psalm 19 stands out among all these creation psalms because this particular psalm is the foundation, the biblical foundation for a very important doctrine that we'll talk about in a minute that it essentially describes our relationship to God. So what we're going to do is, take, is read through Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is organized into three parts. We're going to take a look initially at the first two parts of Psalm 19, and then we'll close by looking at the third part. Uh, Psalm 19... Uh, might be titled, God Revealed. If we were going to title Psalm 19, we might title it, God Revealed. And the first part of Psalm 19 would be, God Revealed in Nature. So let's read through the first part of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun, it is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Here, David is, is reflecting upon the beauty of the night sky. And his, his response is to recognize that, this, that, that, the, that the universe that he is part of is the handiwork of a creator, that which he sees all around him is the handiwork of a creator. He knows that God exists because of the creation itself. And he also recognizes that the beauty, the grandeur, the, the majesty of the creation reflects the God who made everything. It reflects God's glory. It reflects God's majesty. 
So God is undeniable to David because of the beauty and the magnificence of the world around him. And David then goes on to think through what this means. What it means is that no one can hide from this revelation of God. No one, regardless of who you are, where you are, what you're doing, what you think, what you believe, nobody but nobody can deny the reality that God exists and this God who brought everything into existence is a God of glory and majesty. That, that, that this is a revelation that goes out to all people at all times under all circumstances. It is undeniable. It is undeniable. The second part of the psalm we might call God revealed through the law. Now in David's day, the totality of scripture would have been the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what David would have had as scripture. And so David recognizes that scripture is how God makes his desires for us known. It's how God communicates to us what is expected of us. And what is our relationship with him? So he says here, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, the honey from the honeycomb. So David here is, is, again, recognizing that while the heavens declare the glory of God, while the heavens tell us that God exists and tells us something about the, the power and the majesty of this creator, that it's through the law, through, through scripture, that we understand what is expected of us. And that, and that scripture is powerful to guide us, to direct our paths. It gives us wisdom. It gives us understanding. It gives us insight. It gives us warning. And that, that scripture is incredibly valuable for this very reason. In other words, what we're saying here is that, that we can know God through the world that he has made. The psalmist uh, in, in David in Psalm 33 writes this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He piles up the waters of the sea, he puts the depths into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the people of the world revere him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. That, that the world that we live in is something that God spoke into existence. He commanded and it came into being. We might say that the creation for us is God's spoken word to us. Have you ever thought about the world that we live in as actually being God's word, part of God's word to us? It's his spoken word to us. Paul writes to to, to Timothy, this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And here, what Paul is communicating to Timothy is that 
just like God spoke the creation into existence, the scripture is something that God also spoke into existence. But he did this through the work of the Holy Spirit that was inspiring human authors to write the truth that God would want to communicate to us. So we might say that scripture is God's written word to us. And so creation is God's spoken word. Scripture is God's written word. Now this idea that God has made himself known to us is really, really a very important idea. And that's what I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking. Because our understanding of God is as part of Christian theism, our understanding of God is that God is a transcendent creator. That's theological language. And what that means is that God, who spoke the universe into existence, is not part of that which he has made. He's separate. He's independent. He's outside of the creation. He is transcendent. Now, if, if God is transcendent and we as human beings are creatures that he has made that are part of the creation and God is outside the creation, it serves to reason that for us as human beings, God is absolutely unknowable to us. Now, just be, bear with me for a second. God is, at, in, in other words, on our own ability, on our own capability, we can know nothing at all about God. God is completely hidden from us. It's inherent in his very nature as being a transcendent creator. But what scripture is teaching us is that God has actually revealed himself to us. He wants us to know that he exists. He wants us to know who he is. He wants us to know him. And this, to me, is an expression of God's incredible love for us, that he wants us to know something about him, to know him, to be in a relationship with him. And so this idea is called revelation. This is a, an important doctrine in Christian theology, the idea of God's revelation. And Psalm 19 helps to give an understanding of the nature of God's revelation to us. Theologians describe one form of this revelation as general revelation. This is revelation that is generally available to all people at all times under all circumstances. And it includes nature itself. God is revealed to us through nature. And this idea is not just limited to Psalm 19. This is an idea that is found throughout the Old and the New Testament. For example, in Job, Job states this, Ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds of the air and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you, which of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? As Job is contemplating the creation, he recognizes that it, it is self-evident that everything around him must be the work of a creator. That, that God, while he is transcendent, while we can't directly see God, we can tell that God must have brought everything into existence because we can see his fingerprints in his creation. We can see his fingerprints in the creation that point to the reality of who he is. Psalm 8 makes the same point. 
When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. We saw in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim his majesty. The same idea is also seen in Psalm 8. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. How how does the creation reflect God's glory and majesty to you? Have you ever thought about that? When you start contemplating the beauty of nature, have you ever paused for a moment and asked, how is this reflecting God's glory and God's majesty? Psalm 50 tells us that the heavens proclaim the righteousness of God. God himself is judge. How do the heavens proclaim God's righteousness? In Psalm 90, which is a psalm written by Moses, we see that Moses is comparing God's eternal nature to the features of the earth. You know, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And scientifically, we've measured the age of the universe. We've measured the age of the earth. And the universe is about 13.8 billion years in age. The earth is about 4.5 billion years in age. And when we think about this, as, as vast a, a time frame as that is, it, it, it pales in comparison to God's eternal nature. But as we contemplate the antiquity of everything we see around us it, that are part of nature's features, we recognize, again, something about the creator who brought everything into existence. I love Psalm 36. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. And so even when we contemplate nature, we should walk away getting a sense of God's love, God's faithfulness. God's care for us. In other words, the creation <laughs> communicates something very important to us about who that creator is. Theologians also talk about another type of general revelation, our conscience. Right? The, the, uh, uh, sometimes theologians will refer to this as the law that's written on our hearts. The prophet Jeremiah said this, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That in addition to the law, which gives us specifics about about who God is, how we relate to God, what God expects of us, what constitutes wisdom... There is also a sense and an understanding that we intuitively have about what God expects for us. And this is what God has placed in our minds and has written on our hearts. In fact, um, Paul, who wrote uh, to the church at Rome in his theological masterpiece, uh, 
communicates both concepts of God's revelation to us, of of his general revelation to us. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without an excuse. Paul also, echoing the prophet Jeremiah, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences, also bear witness, and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and other times defending them. God is making himself known to us. This is... To me, this is absolutely incredible. And then last but not least on the list of ways that God reveals himself to us that are, that's part of general, general revelation are human beings. Why would I say that? Because we are made in God's image. And because we're made in God's image, we are imaging God. We image God. Each human being has infinite worth and value. Each human being is sacred. And so we could spend a long time unpacking this because it's such a rich idea. But I don't know if you've ever thought about this, that that in some ways you are reflecting God, that you are part of God's revelation. Theologians also talk about a different type of revelation called special revelation. And this is what you're most familiar with. Special revelation is essentially God acting in human history and as people encounter God and experience God directly, they record these experiences in what we now have as the Old and the New Testament. The 66 books of the Bible are God revealing himself to particular people at particular times. Now, this this discussion, which probably feels a bit academic to some of you, and I can't help myself. That's just the way I I think about things. But this really is setting the stage for what I really want to talk about this morning that I think is really something very important. And this goes back to this idea of God's hiddenness. Remember, we said because God is transcendent, he is inherent in his nature hidden from us, but God has gone out of his way to make himself known to us, who he is, what he would have for us. But there are many people that I interact with who are non-believers, who are atheists, non-theists, agnostics, skeptics, whatever term you would like to use, who complain that, that God is not knowable to them that they, they complain something like this. If God really exists and he wants us to know him, then why doesn't he make himself more plainly evident to us? Why doesn't he make him disclose himself to us? And in fact, for philosophers of religion, this is considered today to be the most significant challenge to God's existence and ultimately to the Christian faith, is this problem of divine hiddenness. That God must not exist, or if he does exist, he must not care about us. And so people see this as a complaint 
that, 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 and a reason to reject belief in God. But what Psalm 19 is telling us is that God has indeed made himself known to us. It's just that you as creatures don't have the right to dictate to God, the transcendent creator that spoke everything into existence. You just don't have the right to tell God how he should disclose himself to you. That's not your privilege. That's not your prerogative. But God has made himself plainly and abundantly known to all of us. And so this is not an objection against the Christian faith. All right, it's not an objection against the Christian faith. But this problem of divine hiddenness is not just something that atheists complain about. It's something that all of us experience at one time or other. Maybe some of you this morning are experiencing the problem of divine hiddenness. Does it ever feel to you like God is nowhere to be found? Does it ever feel to you like that God is compl- that you can't sense God's presence? Does it ever feel to you like you're praying and God isn't hearing your prayers? He, maybe he doesn't even care about your prayers. Do you ever have that feeling? It's common for, for many people to, who are believers to, to have that, that feeling. In fact, in Psalm 22, David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you, and they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like that? It's okay if you have. David is validating that, that feeling. Here's David He's crying out to God in anguish, and God just doesn't seem to care, doesn't seem to hear him. He feels forsaken by God, yet he remembers, he remembers that God did indeed show up when his ancestors, when Israel cried out to God to be saved, he showed up and he saved them. And so David is confused. Why are you answering the prayers of my ancestors, but you're not answering my prayers? It's interesting to me oops, that when Jesus was dying on the cross, when he, was, when he willingly went to the cross and gave himself up so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to the Father, that the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. The wrath of God that was really due all of us, every human being because of our sin, was absorbed by Christ. And in that, in, that, in that moment, Jesus, the, the second member of the Trinity, the second member of the Godhead, some, that, that, that relationship, that communion was seemingly broken in that moment where God's wrath was being poured out on Christ. And he cries out, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet in spite of this, We also see passages like Hebrews 13, which tell us that God will never leave us and forsake us. 
So how is it, if God will never leave us and forsake us, how is it that we somehow feel as if God has indeed left us and forsaken us? Seems like two contradictory ideas. I would submit to you that the answer to that is perspective. That from God's perspective, he's never leaving us. He's never abandoning us. But from our perspective, sometimes it may feel that way. It may feel that way, but Psalm 19 tells us what we should do under those circumstances when it feels as if God is hidden from us, when it feels as if God is silent. It's that we need to remember that God has revealed himself to us in a continual, ongoing manner in the creation itself. And so in the times when you feel as if God has abandoned you, maybe what you need to do is go out and get into nature and just spend a little bit of time reflecting upon the beauty of the world and what that is telling you about who God is and how God must care for you. Or pick up scripture and read. Scripture is, again, God's revelation to us. And we can find comfort and we can find peace in the word of God in the times where God seems silent from us. So we're not left without resources, is is my point. Okay, let's bring this, the, the Psalm 19 to a close by reading the last part of the psalm. And, and this is interesting because now if the part one is God revealed in nature, part two, God revealed in scripture, part three is David's response to recognizing that God is revealed. And what does he do? He says, Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they, may they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When David realizes that God has revealed himself to us through his creation, that he's given us a insight and wisdom and guidance in understanding through the law, through the, the written word, his response is a response of absolute humility before God, where he, his deepest desire is to please God, to be right with God. And so he appeals to God to reveal his hidden faults to him, to prevent him from committing willful sins. And so my question to you is, what is your response to God? When you, when you recognize God's handiwork in the creation, when you have a, a moment where you recognize God's insight from Scripture, what is, your, what is your response in those circumstances? Is it a response of humility? Is it a response where you desire to please God? The truth be told is that we all have hidden faults. And that we, we many times are happy to have our hidden faults remain hidden, if we're completely honest. That many times we actually engage in willful behave, willfully sinful behavior. Right? We all do that. And there are times where the words from our mouth and the meditations in our heart are not pleasing to God. And that leads us to the last way that God has made himself known to us, and that is through the person of Christ. That the person of Christ is God's ultimate expression of himself 
to human beings, where Jesus, who was the second member of the Godhead, took on a form of a human being to be among us, to live among us. From the Gospel of John, we see this exchange between Philip and Jesus. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And so this is, this is incredibly encouraging because we understand that, again, even though we have done things that separate us from God, that displease God, it's through Christ and his, his sacrificial death on the cross, through his broken body, his spilled blood, that we are, not only are our sins forgiven, but we are reconciled to God. In other words, God not only wants us to know that he exists, he not only wants us to know something about his character and his nature, he not only wants us to know how we should live our lives, what he expects of us, he wants to know us in an intimate and personal way. To me, the, the, the importance of Christ's death on the cross isn't that my sins are forgiven, though that's incredibly important. It's that I am now reconciled to God and I can enter into an intimate relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is incredible to think that the God who spoke this entirety of, the, of creation into existence, whose glory and majesty is evident, whose righteousness, whose justice, whose love, whose power is seen in the creation, is a God who I can know in a personal and intimate way. In a personal and intimate way. And that is absolutely incredible to me. That God has made himself known to us because he loves us and he wants us to be in that intimate relationship with him. Okay, we're now going to, to move to a time of communion. And, uh, and so communion will be served uh, here at the front as well as here in the back of the sanctuary. And um, communion, of course, is a time where we remember Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for our sake where the, the bread that we take is an, representing Christ's body that was broken for our sake, that through breaking of his body that we are healed, that we are made whole, that, that the, 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 the juice that we're going to drink is a reminder of his blood, the blood that was poured out for us on the cross, that our sins could be clean, that we could be cleansed of our sins, that we could be uh, made to be in a right relationship with God. And the psalmist David again cried out to God, may the words of my heart, or my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. And when we enter into a time of communion, it's really important to, to spend a moment thinking through what it is we actually are doing, what this actually represents. Uh, Paul, when he wrote... Uh, to the church at Corinth, instructing them about the Lord's Supper, said this. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. 
A person ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This passage used to really bother me a lot. And it, w- it really messed me up when I would take communion because I, was think- I would always think to myself, am I approaching the table in an unworthy manner? Is- am I taking part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? And I would try to confess every one of my sins and try to make myself right before God. That's not the point. That was not, that's not the point. The point is that as we enter into communion, we just need to take a moment and really think through what this represents. How this represents ultimately the love that God has for us. It's a, and the cost that Christ paid. It's a time of celebration. It's a, also a, a, a somber time as well where we want to reflect about the cost. And so as you take part in communion, I would invite you just to come up uh, uh, and we serve communion here. There's also servers in the back that uh, as you take part in communion, may the words of your mouth and the meditation of your heart be pleasing to God. given to you. Let's take and eat. And he then he took the wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, a sign of the new covenant to come, the blood of Christ. Let's go ahead and pray, and I'll invite the... Oh, the worship band is already up here. Let's just let me close quickly with prayer, and then we'll turn it over to the worship band. Father in heaven, we are so grateful uh, that you have made yourself known to us. We're grateful that you've revealed yourself to us, but we're above all grateful that we have hope in you through your broken body and your spilled blood, Lord Jesus. Cleanse us of our sins, draw us close to your heart, and make us bold witnesses to the gospel itself. And may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart always be pleasing to you.